Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Amzu Yitzartili, the people I formed for myself, God, in the voice of the prophet Isaiah, Tilati Yisaperu, that they might declare my praise. Shechianu v'kiyamanu v'higianu l'zmanazeh, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, that has kept me alive and brought me to see this day. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Interlude, 70 Faces of the Nation. Well, Minyat Yisrael, happy birthday. You're just about to be 70, and in respect to the age you've reached, there are some conversations that we need to have. Truth is, we actually began them last week with our talk about the Shoah, and I can tell already that's going to be a long one, perhaps as long as our conversation about the suffering in Egypt before we can possibly transform the horror into something productive. But right now, I want to have a different talk a sort of state-of-the-nation conversation, which we will. And even deeper than the state-of-the-nation, I want to talk about what it means to be an um. We've finally begun the Zionist era of the Jewish story, and it's been a long time coming. And listen, I'm a big fan. It's a dramatic chapter of the story without question, and of particular interest, of course, because it shapes our daily lives. But a chapter it is. The Jewish story is far bigger than Zionism. And I'm curious, if I asked you who was the protagonist of the Jewish story as we've told it up to now, what would you say? I really wonder. My guess is that many people would say, I'm Yisrael, or the Jewish people, or something like that. But what if I asked you about starting in 1948 until today? Now, you might give the same answer, but you might also, especially if, like me, you're the product of a Zionist education, or just an ardent Zionist, you might be tempted to substitute the state of Israel for the people. And that's exactly what I want to talk about. Because as we're going to see in the coming episodes, so much of the intellectual underpinnings of Zionism boil down to a conversation on what it means to be an um. It was a national conversation in the truest sense, and it drove and was driven by the ferment of the 19th century. I want you to picture it. The entire range of thought, from historical materialist Marxists to liberal pragmatists to messianic religious idealists, and everything in between. It even included those who rejected the national notion altogether. Here's a precious quote from Dr. Samuel Cohen, chief rabbi of the liberal community of Pest, in reaction to Herzl's call for the first Zionist Congress in 1897. And if you don't know the story, we'll get to it. Don't worry. Political Zionism, he says, which has pretensions to establish a new Jewish state, is, I believe, a dangerous spiritual folly. This movement will never succeed in Hungary. Both the liberals and the orthodox are unanimous in thinking there is no Jewish people. Now, before you be too quick to laugh at Dr. Cohen as I was at first, I admit, sitting here looking out at the hills of the state of Israel, realize that many of the liberals in the Orthodox in our day are coming right back around to this position of asserting that there is no Jewish people. And if there is a positive to be found in what today is called post-Zionism, in my eyes, 
It's the desire to continue the conversation about what it means to be an Am. Because you see, this conversation had reached a very important point when it got cut off. Cut off by two historical events. One was the Shoah, the Holocaust. Now, at the risk of bringing up too painful an image, I want you to picture that full range of Zionist thinkers that I described earlier. Picture them as if they were sitting around a long boardroom table. At one end, you have the historical materialist Marxists who refused to even be on the same table as the religious messianic idealists at the other end. And you've got a various bunch of different groups of ideologies in the middle trying to hold things together. And they're all shouting and screaming and yes and no, and this is what it is and that's what it's not. And suddenly, knock at the door. Everybody, get on the boat, get out of hurry up, or it's over. And unfortunately, those that got on the boat managed to keep their voice in the conversation, and those that didn't, did not. But all of their opinions, no matter what they thought, no matter who survived, were muted by the horrific scar of near-national annihilation. It's sad, but truth is, Hitler succeeded in awakening people to their peoplehood, where many of these conversations might have failed to move them. Not only that, but he suppressed the deeper questions of what it is to be an Am in service of survival, which I have no regrets about, but the better life gets, the more pressing the question remains. So there was the Shoah, and then there was a more international, pun intended, element of the conversation, and that was the astounding rise of the nation-state as the unit of measure for national existence on our globe in the post-World War II era. Now, if you ask many people, man on the street, so to speak, which I've done, how to define the word um, which I've avoided up to now, often their first response will be nation, but that's incorrect. Le'um is the Hebrew word for nation. Am is better translated as people. But post-World War II, peoplehood and nationhood became conflated, especially as so many peoples were looking for recognition and legitimacy within their lands from the world body that was born out of that war, the United Nations. And suddenly, to be a people was to be a nation, was to have a nation state. And if you want to understand the difference between these words in Hebrew, between le'um and am, between nation and people, it's actually quite helpful to translate their adjectival forms, le'umi and amami. Le'umi is national in the, in the nationalist sense. He's like, he's really a nationalist. Well, Amami is someone who is of the people. It's a folk type. Now, think about the growing divide in the definition and the experience of peoplehood that's emerging between the Jews of the state of Israel, who live in the Le'um, and those in America who are certainly still part of the Am. And you can get a sense of why it's so important that we continue this conversation of what is an Am. Now I have to get out there that I have more than a little bit of trepidation in opening this can of worms. Because I know that when we look too close at how we got to where we got and how we became who we are, a lot of hard things can come up. I don't know how often you do it for yourself, but I don't know, at least once a year I dig it up in my own personal life. But for all that, and for all the fact that I'm an advocate of the power of memory, I would never deny the importance of forgetting as well. You know, Ernst Renan, French philosopher, historian, 
an author of the late 19th century and very important thinker on the question of nationalism, said in his critical essay, What is a Nation? And by the way, you've got to read it. Written in 1882, he says, Forgetting, I would even say historical error, is an essential factor in the creation of a nation. It's not good to look too close at questions of origin, he says. And furthermore, he goes on to add, it's for this reason that the progress of historical studies often poses a threat to nationality. Historical inquiry throws light on the violent acts that have taken place at the origin of every political formation, even those that have been the most benevolent in their consequences. And he concludes, unity is always brutally established. Now, I'm not afraid of our past. I have no illusions of perfect left to be shattered, and the truth of my myths is too deep to be threatened by historical facts. Furthermore, I'm a firm believer in the righteousness of the people of Israel and of our national connection to the land of Israel. After all, it was the prophet Isaiah who said, And all your people, all of them, righteous shall possess the land for all times. But I'm also no fool. I can see very clearly that we have a lot of work to do before we can merit the permanence of that promise, work, and some serious conversations to be had about what it means to be an um. You know, in that very same essay, What is a Nation?, Renan gives us a definition that will serve us quite well in the coming episodes of the Jewish story. He says that a nation is a group of people whom, having done great things together, wish to do more. And I think that we could do worse in using that as a definition of Am Yisrael, of the Jewish people, as we go forward. So the question that I want to open up on this momentous occasion of the 70th anniversary of our national independence is, what does it mean to be an Am? And before I throw my hat in the ring and give you my piece of the conversation, I want to add one more thing. We the people have a dream. And it's a dream which came to us through the words of that most powerful of all prophets, Isaiah. And it's a dream I believe unites everyone who calls themselves a Jew, even if they have radically different visions of how that dream will be realized in the world. And that is Isaiah's call to Am Yisrael to be a light unto the nations, or the Goyim. You know, he uses the term or the Goyim twice, really three times if you want to go with the image rather than the phrase. But it's the one which appears in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, which is of interest to me right now. Ani Adonai karaticha v'tzedek v'achazek v'yadecha v'tzarcha v'tenha v'brit am v'or goyim. I, the Lord, in my grace have summoned you, and I have grasped you by the hand. I created you and appointed you a covenant people, a light of nations. So this conversation about what it means to be Am has a goal. A goal beyond any academic definition of the word Am, however useful that may prove. And that goal is right there at the end of this line from Isaiah. Brit Am. Goyim, a covenant people, a light unto the nations. The goal is a brit, a national covenant that can bind us together as a people in order to finally bring to light God's light in the world. 
So, you know, unless you've been a devoted listener to the Jewish story from the very beginning, and by the way, those of you who had, God bless you out there, chazak nimat, keep going strong. But unless you have, you may have missed the fact that my presentation of the Jewish past is built on a very specific framework. And truth is, even if you've been there since the start, I'm not entirely sure that I've ever laid that framework out in a direct fashion. And in many ways, at least in my mind, the question of what is an um, what is it to be a people, underlies the whole story I've been telling. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to speak out the vision of history, which is driving me to tell this story. And in so doing, God willing, I'll trigger some productive questions and conversations about what is an um, what is this people of which you speak? And I want to encourage you now, if you have questions or thoughts, i am already got one eye on season three of well, once we reach the linear progress talking about the past, we're going to put a little bit of energy into analyzing the present and maybe even thinking about the future together. So send me your questions, send me your comments, send me the things you want me to respond to. You can send them to ravmikefoyer at gmail.com. You can send them to my Facebook page, ravmikefoyer, or uh, I don't know, smoke single messenger pigeon, right? And I'm going to speak this framework out in a moment and it might prove a little bit complex for you to digest in a purely auditory fashion. So if you want the one-page f- write-up of this framework, you can also write to me, or you can go to ravmike.com and look for the button on the upper menu that says resources. I'll put it there, God willing, before I post this show. So anyway, in, even, by the way, if you've heard this Pardes framework from me before, I still encourage you to stick around for the rest of this episode, because the angle of the um might actually provide new insight. So here we go. We're heading off script. Now, before I even get to my framework, it's important to note that the whole idea of what's called historiosophy, this idea that there's some grand narrative underlying the progress of humanity through time, has kind of lost favor in the eyes of postmodern historians. Arguably, Arnold Toynbee was the last historian of any note who got away with it. But frankly, I don't care. And as you know, I'm not really a historian. I'm just trying to tell a story of the past that can build a people in the present that will be motivated to take us to the future that we want to live. So, the framework that I'm following is driven, or really built upon, the classic tool of textual analysis, which is known in Hebrew as pardes. Right? That's in Hebrew, pe, resh, dalid, samech. And each letter of that four-lettered word <coughs> stands for a different level of textual analysis. I'm going to walk you through the textual analysis just so you can appreciate that really what we're discussing is a development of consciousness through time, as we've spoken about before. So first is pshat, which literally means the simple meaning of text. And if you're under the age of 35, as soon as I say the plain meaning of text, you probably rolled your eyes. But nevertheless, in textual analysis, this is the surface meaning. Not meaning superficial, but in the sense of it's the place that we all make contact. And if you've been following this story, you know that at a certain point, it became very important to Am Yisrael that we no longer discuss the origins or the mechanism of formation of the text, but we agree that we're all relating to the same playing field. It's the place we all make contact. That's the pshat, the simple text. Then the next level in pardes is the resh, it means Remez, which literally means a hint, right? In textual analysis, this is what's known as intertextuality, the idea that um, 
there might be a conversation, so to speak, happening between the text of Isaiah and the text of Deuteronomy. It can also mean the emotional subtext. But for our purposes, what I want you to understand is that remez, this next level of analysis, known as a hint, like a hint, always happens in context. It's a meaning in context. Just like when I hint something to you, you understand what I mean because we share a context. And the context for the level of meaning, which is remez, is the Hebrew Bible. It's the intertextual conversation, and I'll call it meaning within local context, local context being the text itself. So, pe resh dalid, pardes. The next dalid, it means drash. Now, drash is a funny word. You know, it's often translated as to expound, but in truth, the word means to seek. And drash is the level of textual analysis, which is the seeking of meaning in total context. Now, if remez, the hint, was a seeking of meaning in local context, then drash has expanded our context outside of the embodied text and into the wholeness of the Torah, which is a beautiful idea. But the challenge is, where does that wholeness lie? And if you've ever read any rabbinic literature, in particular the Midrash, which of course shares a word, a core word, a root with drash, then you've had the experience of saying, they just took that verse totally out of context. But the reality is, they took it out of local context, and they elevated it into a larger total context. And here's the key is that total context of kol ha-Torah kula, as we call it, all of the Torah, doesn't exist in the text any longer. It exists within the reader. And this is why the sages, who were the masters of the entire corpus of Jewish knowledge, and authors of a good portion of it as well, were the great masters of drash. Because when they read a verse, they could see it both in its remez, in its local context of meaning, and in its drash, they could seek its meaning wherever the context led them. So the next level in, Reish Dalid, Samech Pardes. That Samech stands for Sod. Now, Sod literally means secret. And a secret is something that you don't tell anyone else. So we're just going to stop here. No, seriously. No, it's often associated with the Kabbalah, which, if you've been listening to the Jewish story, you know that that term really only became associated with the mystic traditions in Judaism in the 13th century in Spain. But the truth of the matter is, Kabbalistic mystical systems are not what Sod is about. Because anything that you can systematize, that you could write down and communicate to someone else, is not really a secret. A secret is something not only you do not, but you cannot tell to others. This is the level of meaning in text, which is meaning as it's experienced, rather than as it's communicated. It's your own intimate meaning that emerges solely through your personal interaction with the text, which is related to the mystic tradition because, of course, behind every text lies a voice that's speaking to you. And when you learn to hear the voice instead of just focusing on the words, then you've reached the level of sod. But besides from that, I want you to sense emotion that's happening in this four-part framework for textual analysis, from the surface meaning of pshat, to the embodied local meaning of remes, to the whole meaning of drash being sought wherever it can be found to sod, which is that meaning which is an inner relationship with the text. It's a motion of meaning out of text into reader. Now, at this point, if you've never heard me tell you this before, you're probably wondering what on earth does this have to do with history and the whole question of what it means 
to be an Am. Well, I'm here to tell you, it has everything to do with it. Because, you know, every people has its story of kings and their wars. Every people can trace a history of literature and great works of art and uh, who knows what. All the classic social, economic, what have you, frameworks for history. But the richness of the Jewish story is that it's an evolution of consciousness in its historical context. And our consciousness has evolved not just in relationship to, but as an expression of our sacred text. And therefore you can trace a historical progression through these four layers. And I'll do that in brief for you now. But I remind you, if you want to see the whole thing written up in a tight one-page presentation, drop me a line at robmikefoyer.com. So, shot, simple meaning. And we're doing this now through the lens of what it means to be an um. Shot of the word um, peoplehood, is actually very close to the word im, which in Hebrew means with. In fact, if I write the two words, and since Semitic languages don't have vowels, you wouldn't know which one I had written unless you could determine it from context. Am and im, people, and together is the same word. And that really is, in the end of the day, the most simple meaning of what it is to be a people. We're those that are together. And by the by, what binds us together? What binds us together is our story. You know, we may have mentioned, and if we haven't, and we certainly will in coming episodes, the work of Benedict Anderson and his extremely influential work, Imagined Communities. I highly recommend it. Good read. Deep insights. And his basic premise is that the nation is an imagined community. It's a construct. What he particularly puts the emphasis on media, and he's doing his analysis of 19th century European nationalism, worthwhile. But for Am Yisrael, it's no surprise that a nation is basically an expression of a story. Because we as a people know that we're together insofar as we share a story. I want you to picture what it would be like to, to be Benjamin Tudela, who left Spain in the 14th century and began to travel across the world, meeting all kinds of people, being exposed to completely new cultures. He made it all the way to the Holy Land and beyond. And everywhere he stopped, he found Jews. And how did he know that they were part of the same people? I mean, they didn't look like each other. Oftentimes, they shared no language at all. You know what the answer is? They were all telling the same story. Three times a day in synagogue, they told the same story when they prayed to God. When they learned the Torah, they were telling the same story. When they practiced the halacha, Jewish law, it was an expression of the same story. And in history, this is what the Aboriginal peoples of Australia call the dream time. It's a time in which there was no history. There wasn't even a story. Avraham didn't know that he was in a story. He was just Avraham living his life. And in the progress of our story, this begins with creation and lasts right up until Yehoshua ben Nun, Joshua, the great general and student of Moshe, led the Jewish people across the Jordan River and first conquered the land of Israel. Because then we came out of this, we're a people because we're together, and it's simply a dream time where we're unaware that there's any story that's being told, into the next level of history, the embodiment of the spirit of Israel. And that's the level of remez. Remember, in text, that was meaning in local context. It was embodied meaning. And this is precisely what begins with Joshua and the conquest of the land of Israel and lasts the entire first temple period. Now, if you've been listening to the Jewish story since the beginning, you realize we didn't really speak about that a little bit with the book of Daniel. And you can go back and listen to that first episode. By the way, I want your votes. Should I make that first episode over? It's going back and forth in my mind. 
But either way, you go back and you listen, you get a sense that the whole purpose of the first temple period was to embody the kingdom of God in a kingdom of flesh and blood. That the lived experience of the Jewish people in our locality was meant to be an expression of the infinite. And the essence, the definition of Am that came out of there began in the voice of the prophets and in the kingdom that the kings ruled over and, of course, in the embodiment of the holy temple. Now, we can't retrace all of Jewish history. Don't be nervous. I'm not going to do it. But strangely enough, the element that this level of history, which begins with the conquest and really ends with the destruction of the first temple, and there's a gap in there with the Babylonian exile, the essence of what it adds to the definition of an Am, to an embodied people, actually comes to fruition with the Maccabees. Why? Well, listen, that first temple period was the adolescence of Am Yisrael. And if you have ever been an adolescent, or if you happen to be one now, or if you happen, like myself, to be a parent of one, then you know that the hallmark of an adolescent is that their identity is founded by ignoring the existence of others. The reason that 18, 19-year-old boys have been willing to kill and die for every idea you can imagine throughout history is because they're totally consumed by their ideas. Now, to those of us of more mature age, that may seem strange, but I'll tell you this. If you've ever had the aspiration to be an artist, if you've ever been moved by some inner creative urge, then you know that unless you allow yourself to be totally consumed by your idea, you'll never find your voice. And what you produce won't be genuine to who you are. You can't create while you're thinking about what others may say about what you have to do. It's true, there's a later process of exposing it to criticism and feedback, and that's true. But the first act is an inwardly consuming act. And this was the time period of Remez, from Joshua to the end of the first temple period. We were totally consumed by our existence as the people of God. And the voice that came out of that was the voice of prophecy. And the last spark of the voice of prophecy actually came once this period was already over. And I'm speaking about the Maccabees. Now, if you go back and you listen to the episodes on the Maccabees, you'll see a lot there about identity and about drawing boundaries and many important things. But more than anything else, the thing that this period of Remez, which in many ways, even though it's outside of the framework, finds its best expression in the spirit of the Maccabees, the thing that it adds to the definition of Am is this notion that consumed the Maccabees, that an Am, a people, is one that has sovereignty over a particular geography in order to achieve its destiny. That's what the Maccabees were. And that spirit of the Maccabees, this notion that we must be a people in this place in order to serve our God, has continued to be the most powerful embodied essence of our peoplehood to this very day. And we'll come to that in a few minutes. So we have in Pshat this idea of Am and Im, that we're a people because we're together and it's our story that binds us. And then we have this spirit of the Maccabees that we're a people that actually has a place and that that place is intimately bound up with our divine destiny. So then you move on to Drash, into the seeking of meaning in total context in the analytic framework. And in the historical framework, it's the birth of the rabbinic mind. It begins with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's really what we spent the entire first season of the Jewish story discussing and I deliberately broke it up from the time of the return of Zion, of Ezra, to the expulsion from Spain. And if you're curious, you can listen to the epilogue from season one to get more of an insight of why I ended that with the expulsion from Spain. But for now, 
this time period is marked by the rabbinic mind. And the rabbinic mind, of course, is marked by the dialectic. This engagement of the world through a question. And the ultimate tool of the dialectic is compare and contrast, which of course is an expression of the notion of us and them. And that's the defining characteristic of Am, of peoplehood, which will allow Am Yisrael, once the second temple is destroyed, to be scattered throughout the world. We engage the world as a question presented to us by God. We engage the human condition as a question presented to us by God. But we engage the peoples around us as someone other than ourselves. Now, that's a very powerful posture. And as we know from 19th century European nationalism, it can be sufficient for defining a people. I am what I am because I'm not you. It also can have some fairly ugly consequences if that's the sum total of your peoplehood. But of course, it's not here. We have our story in the pshat. We have that spirit of the Maccabees, which is always calling us back to our embodied existence in the land of Israel. And we have the rabbinic mind, which engages the world by saying, I am me and you're you and we're not the same but I can learn from you as long as I know I'm me and you're you and I keep that clear boundary. In fact, we can have a positive relationship. And if you have listened to the episode from season one, then you know it's right when that clarity of us and them broke down that the tables began to turn. And so the rabbinic mind adds to this definition of peoplehood a boundary condition. And finally, in history, we reach the level of sod, of secret It's, you know, in the flow of time, I mark this from the expulsion from Spain right up until the redemption. Let it be soon. Let it be now. And in our story, or our local discussion right now about what it is to be an Am, there's a fascinating dichotomy that emerges. First of all, modernity, and certainly post-modernity, are marked by the rise of the individual. Even though nationalism is a powerful force, There's a tremendous cross-current of individualism within nationalism, and we're going to discuss that in coming episodes, particularly when we talk about Max Nordau and Zev Jabotinsky. But for now, all you need to do is get on a bus and watch the people around you with their sunglasses and their earbuds in, zipping back and forth in their own little world. The postmodern world is certainly a culture of individuals, all of whom have their own narratives, They're rulers in a kingdom of one. And this is actually what the Kabbalah, what the mystic tradition calls the trap of Anna Emloch. I will be king. And the problem is you can only be king in a kingdom of one if everyone else is a separate kingdom. And it's very difficult to build a people. This may sound familiar. I often encounter amongst my students the question, Where is there a place for my brand of Judaism? And while I honor the question, as well as the value that underlies it, and I actually find exciting and challenging the ferment of new ways to be Jewish that's happening all around me, nevertheless, here's the problem. If it's my brand or your brand or his or hers or whomever, then where is this Judaism that binds us together? Well, maybe it's not an adequate definition for peoplehood any longer. Because when you end up in a postmodern world of individuals, of everyone king in their kingdom of one, really there is no people. And that's why you'll hear the language in this, our present postmodern era, saying that peoplehood is an illusion at best. That's what the postmodern historians, what are called the new historians, are saying. And at worst, it's a tool in a discourse of power, an evil attempt to violate the sanctity of 
the individual. But I've got news for you. First of all, it's astounding that right here, as all the definitions, that simple definition of am um, that we got from Pshat, which is am um, im, we're people because we're together. We have the same story. That's broken down in the world of narrative challenge. And the notion of the remez, the spirit of the Maccabees, that sovereignty over geography is what we need to achieve our destiny that so powerfully drove the Zionist movement is also under attack today. As we see that embodiment is always a messy process. When you set your boundaries, they have edges, and often those edges are sharp, and either they need to be defended or they end up by stepping on other people's toes. And furthermore, the rabbinic mind that said, well, us and them, this dialectic of how we engage the world with a question is the way to define our peoplehood. On one hand, it broke down in the face of a lack of clarity between who's us and who's them. On the other hand, on a certain level, there is no end to the dialectic. And when you add to the dialectic the tool of deconstruction, well, then you can completely erase anything meaningful in the notion of peoplehood that emerges from it. And so here we are, a world of individuals, eye shades on, earbuds in, racing around in parallel but separate existences. Except in this amazing turn of events, I'm telling you this from the middle of the modern state of Israel. And whether the state and the Am are the same thing, I remind you that's where we began, it's a reality that cannot be denied. And what's fascinating is that, I won't do it now for the sake of time, I could walk you back through, well, I'll do it briefly, how the Zionists basically recapitulated. They re-encapsulated all these levels. First of all, there's a beautiful recapturing of narrative, of a simplicity of Am and Im, that what it is to be a people is to just be together in what we call Zionist historiography, a reworking of history to tell a new story which can create a new Jew. Then, of course, the Zionists are very enamored of this spirit of the Maccabees. And whether they believe that we had to have sovereignty over geography to achieve our divine destiny, or whether they needed it to achieve our national destiny, there's not an accident that the Maccabees became national heroes in the modern state of Israel. But very quickly, we move beyond both that simple amami sense of being together, and even the very romantic notion of national destiny to a big question. You know, and this is what has triggered what I call the post-Zionist breakdown, is that you could look at our story in many different ways, and particularly when you're willing to see it through the eyes of other, be it enemies, friends, refugees, strangers, the eyes of the other in our society, see our story of the modern birth of the state of Israel, not always in the most positive light. And so we're left wondering what holds us together as a people in the modern state of Israel? What does it mean to be an Am? And so I'd really like to wrap up that question with the Holy Torah. You know, in Numbers in Bamidbar, 23.9, we get a very important definition from the Torah of what it means to be an Am, a people. It comes to us, not coincidentally, through the voice of Bilam, the great prophet of the nations. And I've spoken elsewhere, and we can speak at another time, about why it's so critical that the words of Bilam, who comes from the outside, so to speak, and sees our national entity, are so critical in understanding who we are. But he looks out from the hilltop, Anam Israel, and he defines us as Am Livadad Yishkon, a people that dwells alone. Now, first of all, 
And I know I've asked many of you this question before. If you were the almighty creator, so to speak, and you wanted to make a people that dwell alone, where would you put them? Gobi Desert, I don't know, maybe the jungles of the Amazon, Antarctica. You would not put them at the crossroads of the ancient world. And that, of course, was our birth out of Egypt. But we're not just the crossroads of the ancient world. When the Greeks came along, we became the crossroads between Greek and Persia. And then when the Greeks split up, we became the crossroads between the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires. Along come the Romans, and we're the boundary between the Romans and the Parthian Empire. And lo and behold, right now, we're once again between a rock and the hard place as the United States and Iran and Russia start to consider towing off. Right there, in the middle of things, is this people that dwells alone. Am levadad yishgon. Well, perhaps the answer is, is that as a people, we're not meant to be separate from others, but rather to be yishgon, indwelling. That our inner conversation, the ability to be together with each other, within the boundaries of our national existence, holding a question of what it means to be a people, respecting the sanctity of the individual, but bound together by our destiny, by a conversation about what it means to be us, is an incredibly fruitful conversation. In fact, one that has to be inward focused. It can't be one that is worried about what the world will say. Oh, it can be influenced. It can take from the wisdom of every people and individual on the planet. In fact, as our sages said, the wise are those who learn from everyone. But in the end of the day, to be an Am, we have to be levadad yishkon. We have to be indwelling. That our conversation about meaning and destiny has to be one that flows from within before we can offer anything outward. Like Isaiah said earlier, as I said in the introduction, that the brit am l'orgoyim. I've made you a covenant people. You're bound to each other before you can bring my light to the world. And you know, the funny thing is, is the tension between the particular and the nation, which is such a hallmark of Israeli society. You know, it may be apocryphal, but they say that once Ben-Gurion was meeting another national leader who said, well, I'm important because I'm the prime minister of seven million people. Ben-Gurion said to him, well, (laughs) I only have a million, but I'm the prime minister of a million prime ministers. You know, the nature of that makes that discourse particularly challenging because we are a people of Anna Emloch. We are people who really believes in the sanctity of the individual. At the same time, we are an Am. Love it, hate it, but we need to talk about what it means. And if you've ever watched the Knesset on television, by the way, the Knesset to me is an astounding thing. Aside from the fact that I just want to be clear that with all the warts, bumps, and I know more about our fair country than I'd say 99% of the people out there who are shooting arrows at it. With all the warts and bumps, ashrenu matov chelkenu, we are grateful to live in a time where we can have this conversation as free individuals. And the Knesset is, to me, one of the most important expressions of our freedom. And you know, it's the only place in the world where Jews of every type actually talk to each other. Get out there, people, and talk to someone who's not like you. Because maybe you have something to learn, and I promise you, you have something to teach. So if you ever watch the Knesset on TV, you'll see there's a lot of shouting. And you might not think we have what to offer. But the truth is, our inner discourse can offer a model to the whole world. So why have this conversation now? And we've really only begun. Because 70 isn't just another number. By the way, happy birthday to you. 70 years 
is something to be proud of in the state of Israel. But it's also a time to have some serious conversations. Because our sages teach us that there are 70 nations that make up the world, 70 languages of which communication consists. That 70 judges sat on the Sanhedrin, our high court, let it return in our days, from whom justice emerged, and that there are 70 faces to the truth of the Torah. So, as is always true, 70 is not a numeric marker in a mathematical system. It's a rich symbol in a language of meaning. And in that language, 70 represents the number of complexity in unity. It's the number that teaches us that united, the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts. And not because those parts subsume their individuality into a homogenizing whole. That notion that the universal, that the unity was to be gained through homogenization was the illusion of all the false universalist notions that have sought to conquer the planet throughout time. No, 70 is the number of which we dream. It's a world in which each element finds its voice, joining in a rich and yes, sometimes discordant conversation. We're too old at this point to believe it always works out. But I promise you, if you try hard enough, we can be in it together. And so, at the risk of going off, I'll just end with someone else's words. The words of our great master and teacher, that visionary of the turn of the 20th century, Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, who I promise you becomes more relevant as each day goes by. It's fitting that humanity be united into one family, and then all conflicts and bad traits which arise from the divisions of people and their borders will cease. But the world requires an essential refinement, an advance through which humanity integrate all the richness of the colors particular to each nation. This lack will be filled by Knesset Yisrael, by Am Yisrael, whose particular quality is a great storehouse of spirits that contains within it every ability and every lofty spiritual inclination. Through the complete fullness of Knesset Israel, and particularly through its connection with the whole world, all the good which comes from the divisions of peoples will be maintained in the world, and there will no longer be a need for actual division. All the peoples will be one unit and above in the role of a holy storehouse, the kingdom of ministers, and holy nation, the treasured portion of all the peoples, as God has spoken. I just want to thank a few people. I want to thank you for listening. And I want to thank the people who give their hard-earned money to make this happen. I invite you to join them right now. Go to RobMikeFoyer.com. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a box that says, Be a Patron. You can click on through to give a little bit of per-podcast support. I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com for creating a platform that allows me to reach so many wonderful people. I want to thank Pardes, that's P-A-R-D-S dot org dot I-L, for building an institution that gives me the opportunity to teach. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit Almad dot pardes dot o r g